Midwest Mavericks is powered by Mother G, aligning business and technology. All right, we're good to go. So, um, so we're live now. Yeah, we're good to go. All right, uh, it's kind of a different way of recording a podcast, isn't it? Yeah, you would think that uh, you just press one button and, and you're good to go. But instead, I get to see your face too, so that's kind yeah, of nice. Yeah, a little video conference. <laughs> you know, normally I've got Todd at Hubbard Media with you know like a regular mic setup and everything, and now here I am at home. I've got my little trusty microphone and I'm sitting in front of my computer. It's a, a little different setup. How's how's the setup from home going? Uh, I mean, I've got my monitors and uh, it's just nice to wear sweatpants instead of jeans to work. So that, I think that's the biggest. <laughs> yeah, the biggest well, it, nobody would have noticed either way. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the thing that I find weird, you know, everyone talks about like this working from home and you hear all the things that they're talking about, like, you know, they're going to have virtual happy hours and they've got all these activities and uh, house house games or some, you know, app where they can play games with all their friends and they're doing cooking recipes together on the, and I'm thinking, I've never worked harder than I have in the last few weeks working from home and trying to make sure the company is on, on the right course and all our clients are doing well. I don't know where the hell all these people are getting all this time. Uh, you know, last Friday I got into my home office at about 7.45 in the morning and I happened to bring a pot of coffee with me into the office. I, I went out of the office at noon to get food and went to the bathroom. I was back in the office at 12.20. I worked until 3 when I went uh, briefly to the bathroom again. And then I stayed in the office until 6.30 at night. And, and I literally, that entire day, I had less than 1,000 steps. And normally when I'm in the office, I have like 3,000 steps, 4,000 steps wandering around the office. Yeah, I mean, you're like Michael Scott when we're actually in the office. You're coming around, chit-chatting, seeing what's going on, telling Michael some Scott. jokes. <laughs> That's what she said, Mike. <laughs> and then now, well, I mean, it's like your our setups are awesome. So it's almost like we're in the office, and now it's even more accessible like when you go home. So you're, you're like, oh, well, I'll just pop on my computer real quick and just jot something down or type something. You know, it's funny. It hadn't occurred to me, but because we're video conferencing so much, like the way I pop in on people is with video, which means I have to be at my desk to do it. So <laughs> right. like I'm talking to everybody just as much as I used to, um, but it's via chat and video on right. Teams rather than wandering over to their office and distracting them with some bad joke. But you know what my favorite thing about um, this whole situation has been is to uh, make the IT people realize how much they enjoy other people's company. You know, they, these IT guys are like, well, you know, I don't need anybody's company. I just want to work on my computer. And then all of a sudden they're like, hey, we should do our Friday happy hour. Hey, we should play this game. Hey, yeah. what's going on over here? Look at I our workouts. Especially channel. both happy hours now have started at 430 and have gone until after 10. I popped on and I was like, all right, one, two, three, four. I counted five people on there. I'm like, what the hell are they doing? <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> I know... Uh, Somebody said, uh, without naming names, one of the folks, uh, they think he uh, actually went and <laughs> laid down in the middle of the happy hour and then came back because he had had a few more beers than normal, I guess. It's fun to see the culture kind of hold firm throughout this challenging time where the, where the team just wants to be together and, and help each other and it just comes out. So it's, it's I think actually, people are craving normalcy. 
I just wanted to get you to weigh in a bit on what it's like for you. Um, we hadn't really talked about that, but I, I know it's been very different for me, both uh, challenging, but also um, in some ways very rewarding to, to see how the company has responded through all this. Um, we have a really interesting guest today, uh, Jody Williamson, who's uh, the founder of R. Sandler operation here in Chicago, uh, Sandler training uh, Northbrook in Chicago. He's a really dynamic guy. He's an entrepreneur. He is kind of a, a salesperson by DNA, um, but uh, I, I find him as, as a great business consultant on top of that. I mean, he's, he's run a, his own business for many years, successful business, uh, has a national reputation, uh, is one of the best in the business. And he gives us a lot of uh, really cool insights on uh, what it what it takes to run a business, what it takes to be successful in sales and business development um, gives us some good tips. And then also we, we, the second half, uh, which uh, we've actually broken into two podcasts because of uh, how long I can blather on. And certainly Jody's not short winded either, but uh, you know, some really great content around how to, how to respond to this COVID crisis and, and what businesses should and should not be doing. And I thought that was a, really interesting conversation. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, in the first part, uh, Jody gives some really long lasting tips that are going to help any and every sales team, it, it, whether it's through the crisis or after the crisis, it, it really gives you some great insight. And then, like you said, with the second part, it just wraps it into um, context for the problems that most people are facing today. Did you get the, the impression that he he was a pretty smart, intelligent guy in running his business? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was kind of funny where he talks about this, you know, tenacious mentality, and he is this the most smooth, calm, cool, collected guy. Where you realize that you catch yourself leaning in when he's talking, and yeah. you have to catch yourself, like, okay. I want to write that down, but you're so engaged, you forget to write it down. Well, you know, I, I think that most people misinterpret great salespeople as hard pressing, you know, closers, you know, the Glen Gary, Glenn Ross image of always be closing and, you know, it's dog eat dog world and there's winners and losers. And that's really the opposite of what good professional salespeople do. They, they actually bring tremendous value. And I think Jody really eloquently brings that message across. Yeah, and I think if there's uh, one thing to listen to, and there's a million things within this podcast, but if you listen to that, his favorite sales movie, that gives you insight into him and his style and what actually makes a, a really great salesperson. And yeah. uh, I think that's going to be a real fun part for people to so, hear. So it seems like you, you had a great deal of respect for him by the time we were done. Um, where, where's his favorite pizza from Mike? <laughs> well, you know, is, is it, is it that, uh, what, how, I, I forget, how did he describe New York pizza? Well, uh, listen, you know, even Wayne, cardboard, even cheese on it, you know, even Wayne Gretzky committed a penalty every now and then. So the, the great ones, they, they can. So you're saying even you something. have a flaw in that yeah, you I mean, like Tom, New York Tom pizza. Brady throws pizza. interceptions, Michael Jordan misses free throws, you know, I don't know how many more analogies you want me to give you. We shall continue the debate as to whether Chicago pizza is better than, you're not even from New York either. Oh, I, Jersey poser. I, okay. Well, enough, <laughs> um, enough of this. Let's, uh, let's get to the podcast, Mike. Today on Midwest Mavericks, we have the illustrious Jody Williamson, 
who uh, started his Sandler training business in Northbrook, Chicago, Sandler training Northbrook, Chicago, 24 years ago, and uh, has a very interesting past. We're going to explore his background, and we're also going to talk about what it means to be a salesperson under the COVID uh, sheltering rule, which is a very interesting business environment we're under right now. So welcome to the podcast, Jody. Well, thanks for having me. I will, in full disclosure, I will say that uh, we are a customer of yours, which is why we've been able to twist your arm to get you on the podcast yeah, today. Um, I'm glad to be here. I've really enjoyed uh, getting to know you and your background. I th can you tell us a little bit about uh, kind of your humble beginnings? Yeah, you know, I grew up in Northbrook. You know, it's funny because we talk about selling and, you know, I could give you all the personal stuff, but it's, it ties in is that I was in Cub Scouts and I remember winning the, uh, the Tootsie Roll uh, selling contest, you know, and, <laughs> right. and, you know, I worked at KFC and they had the, you, you were supposed to suggestive sell like, okay, so they order the chicken and then you say, Hey, would you like some hot buttery corn with that? And so I won that contest and I used to, go door to door and sell, uh, you know, I used to hustle uh, driveway, uh, snow cleaning stuff, you know, knock a bunch of doors, get a lot of rejection. And, and so yeah. sales is kind of this, and entrepreneurial stuff has been in my blood. And I didn't realize it until I was kind of, and just we reflect, it's like, wow, I kind of always had that thing going on. So I grew up in, grew up here in Northbrook, went to school here, went to SIU and, and Carbondale. A Saluki, yeah. We like to sound a little more international, so we call it Carbondale. It sounds more... <laughs> Sounds more sophisticated. Yeah. I want to know um, how you became the chapter president of the International Society of Beer Bogs. Okay, I so have to know. How, how long has LinkedIn been around? I don't know, maybe ten years, uh, something like that. Yeah. So, so I I made I made that up as something on my LinkedIn profile, but it's it's really low on the because my theory was people just look at the first part of LinkedIn yeah. and they don't look at the last part. Yeah. So when I created my LinkedIn profile, like, I don't know, 10 years ago, whatever it was, eight years ago, I put on there, um, chapter president, Illinois society of beer blongs. I think, I think Carbondale chapter or something like that. And I put it at the bottom and I just put it there to see how many people mention it as a test to see how many people actually read an entire <laughs> LinkedIn profile. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And you're the third person in however many years who actually has mentioned it. Now, maybe people saw it and were like, how do I mention it? But I think yeah. most people who know me would say, what's that all about? So even my closest colleagues who, you know, I've known for a while aren't, aren't that interested in me where they're going to, I'm going to read his whole profile. Well, but I, I do use it as a learning for people. It's like, you know, because when I looked at yours, I saw some of your interests like involved in the, in the Olympics. And, you know, then I was going to ask you about that. It was just many things we could talk about, but I saw, you know, this is internet. I didn't know that about Dave. It's like, we want, there must be a story with that. And then, yeah. and then I saw the distillery uh, connection that you were following. Uh, is yep. it Koval? Koval. Yep. And they were a recent guest, I know, right, but I didn't so. know that. So I saw that this morning and I was going through uh, the podcast. I'm like, oh, that's, that sounds like an interesting one, especially based on the post. And I, then I was on your company post and I saw that you had posted something about what they're doing. And I'm like, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, but, but I was, I, I, you know, I, I have a form uh, LinkedIn levers, which you know, that we use, right. uh, which we can make available to, um, if there's a way to yeah, make it. Available. Yeah. We can post that on our, uh, but, uh, our page, Mike. But it's, but it's a form that, that kind of forces me to do what I should do on LinkedIn, which is read the entire profile. But if I don't have yeah. the guided kind of form, I don't go that low. So anyway, that's a made up. Now, maybe there is an International I, Society of Beerbongs, but there's call, not. I, I'm going to call a little bit of BS here, though, because you did say you went to uh, Southern and you are a Saluki and you do know what a beer bong is. So I'm assuming we've done a beer bong. 
Now, actually, here's another, here's another, I've mentioned this before uh, in training. I've, I've, you said no one's seen this. So one of our, I have not actually. You've um, never done a beer bong. Uh, so I had a client send me a picture of a beer bong for like eight people. So it's on this stand and there's all these little tubes coming off of it. And I guess it's a way for like, you know, eight, eight people. people and he, and, and he said the same thing. He said, you went to Carbondale and you actually don't know what the group beer bong looks like. I'm like, <laughs> I must've missed that class, you know, <laughs> somehow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, spend some time and, down and there. You were, uh, you were on the, uh, part of the radio station down there. Yeah. WIDB. Yeah. The uh, student uh, radio station. And how, how did you know, that, how did that happen? Well, I, I wanted to get in broadcasting and, you know, one of my heroes growing up radio wise was Steve Dahl. And I just oh, yeah. always really liked Stephen Gary and Dahl specifically, but both of them were so good. And so it got me interested in radio and they had one of those career days at Glenbrook North. And I went to it and there were a couple of people from the loop, the old radio station there. And so it got me interested. So I looked and I said, you had a pretty good program. So I went down there I had a little audition tape I made here that I was in some, you know, was able to make. And I went all the, all the way to SAU just for that. And in the audition to get on the student radio station, which is not the highest bar, right? Right, right. <laughs> I didn't pass the audition. And so here I am, you know, Southern Illinois, never been out of the Chicago area and a whole different. Failed in your first goal. Failed in my first goal to get on a cable radio station. You know, <laughs> so it's like, wow. Uh, but it, it was like great experience, right? You know, we all look back on these things that happened that are in the moment, like negative and can be devastating in a way, but you look back and it was a learning experience. So it actually got me to volunteer at the radio station and other departments. And I just did a bunch of gopher work and got noticed. And ultimately four years later, I was the general manager of the station. Wow. And uh, I led it for my senior year. And uh, you know, managing a hundred plus volunteers I think you can't you can't fire while you're uh, when I was 20 school. years old it was a pretty good formative management experience I sold I had a door-to-door selling radio airtime then and I was on the air too a little bit I was my first on-air gig was actually uh, working on the primetime special which um, was from midnight to I think we had midnight to four midnight to two so that's primetime that was prime time, but it yeah. was actually one probably of the most in college it might have been well, it was the most, probably the most formative thing that happened to me there as far as, um, or one of the most, because I was fortunate enough to work on that show with a guy named Bob Odenkirk. And Bob oh, is gone. you're kidding me. Yeah, Come so on. Bob, Bob has gone on to a lot of things. He's on Better Call Saul now. Um, yeah, wrote for Saturday Night Live. Yeah, he wrote for Saturday Night Live. And, and so I got to know Bob very well for the time we were together. And then when he graduated uh, he was working in Second City, so I went to see him a bunch of times there with my wife, and we always kind of hang with him afterwards. And he tells these stories about how he was trying to get into Saturday Night Live as a writer, and then he finally did. And then he was there, and then he left and worked with Ben Stiller, and then he had the Bob and Dave show, or that Mr. Show they had on HBO, and then he was on Breaking Bad. And uh, uh, the funniest guy you'd ever, I've ever met. But yeah, on his current great. his current thing, he's a drama guy. So so anyway, that was I, I learned a lot from that. I, I learned just observing Bob, like wow, look at like you set goals and you work hard and look what happens. And and he also helped sense form my sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, that's really fascinating. I didn't know you knew Owen yeah. Kirk. I love that. Yeah. Guy. Yeah, Better Call Saul is a great show. It sure is. Um, so so you left there and got into sales at Infinity Broadcasting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was an intern uh, my senior year of SIU for the summer break. I came back and interned. Um, you know, I called the station and they didn't have an internship. So I so I'll, and I come in and I sat with the sales manager and I said, well, 
I want to intern in sales. She says, well, we don't have internship. I said, well, I'll work for free for the summer and just, well, what's the downside? And she's, yeah, you're right. Okay. So come on in. So I worked there and actually asked to make a sales call uh, because it was a local uh, sidewalk sale in Northbrook and I sold them and I brought an order back and she's like, you know, can you just like not go back your senior year and come start? <laughs> no, I'm going back. I got to get that SIU diploma. Yeah. Um, and so I went back, but then they, they offered me a job, came out and, you know, so right out of school I, and I, infinity and radio and radio infinity, like infinity was a big station. Uh, my boss, this boss was Mel Carmison. Uh, we had Howard so, Stern so what, as our New York guy. What was, and, the, what was the station for the Chicagoans? Uh, Magic 104, Oldies 104. Uh, yeah. And then WJGD, so Dick Biondi, Clark Weber, Ron Britton, yeah. some of those guys. So, yeah. so I'm I'm curious. Um, it doesn't sound like. Uh, I mean, you went to school for for broadcasting. You yeah. worked in the radio station. Where did your first formative sales training come from? Well, you know, when I wasn't on the air at SIU, it forced me to say, okay, what can I do? And I got into sales selling airtime for the college radio station in Carbondale, like running around to the print shop and the, the bars and the pizza joints. Um, and then into Chicago, a really good, really good experience because there was like 30 plus radio stations. So it was a dog eat dog. I mean, it was like the yeah. phone book. Oh, you know, yeah. there was no accounts. Like there's the phone book, you sink or swim. Right. So that was another good experience that's carried me into my Sandler and, business. And, and we're I, old enough to remember what a phone book is, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. I, I know it. And, and, and as part of the business now, I sell. I mean, I had a, I had a virtual sales call yesterday. Um, but, but that early experience, and, 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 and I know you've been in business for a while, too. It's like those early experiences of just getting your head kicked in in sales and just all the rejection. Yeah. 30 competitors and just cold calling, you know, is. It was, uh, you know, it's one of the things you don't necessarily want to go back and do again, but, you know, it's what forms you. Right. And so when someone tells me now in a coaching, wow, it's really hard to get to decision makers. It's really hard to get around gatekeepers. It's really hard to uh, avoid call reluctance and pick up the phone and prospect. I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. I do it now. And I, and it's in my DNA. You know, I, I know it's not easy, but you got to do it. It sounds like you kind of came into sales much like me, which is, you know, thrown into the water with the sharks and just sink or swim. And I think one thing that salespeople in their DNA have to have is a tenacity. You, yeah. you just have to want success more than uh, being fearful of the rejection and failure. Because I, I know you have a, a really awesome picture that you use to depict what the life of a salesperson is like. <laughs> and it's a picture of a person holding a phone I think, and, and there's like 50 little snippets of the person holding the phone and underneath is the word no with an exclamation mark 49 times and then there's one yes. And the guy's you know, facial expression on, on all the no's is pretty much the same and it's not downhearted or downtrodden. And on the yes, it's almost not much different. It's, it, it looks the same. And I think that's kind of the salesperson's world is, is that you're dealt these, all these no's and you're just working to find that one yes. And it's, it's kind of a, you got to have some tenacity to deal yeah. with. Yeah. Salespeople aren't the most respected in the general population. People think of, okay, what's the most respected professions? It's not like, you know, doctor, astronaut, and salesperson. It's like doctor, astronaut, like, mass murderer salesperson. I it's think kind we're of, one step above or below a lawyer. I, I <laughs> right, usually down there, right? Yeah. It, you know, and I, I, and I have a really good friend who's a lawyer. And I said the same thing to him. I said, neither one of us are respected, but when, when, when the need comes up for certain things, 
yep. we're pretty you valuable. Become the and best I, friend. Like, well, I told you know. this group of 1,500 people, I said, you know, we got to remind ourselves, it takes a special breed of person to go out and get all that rejection and get up the next day and go do it again. You know, that's, that's not for everyone. And the two most important factors in selling success are desire, which is passion for success, right. and commitment, which is willing to do whatever it takes, even if it's uncomfortable. I heard it put um, as an old proverb, you know, where the guy is asking, what's the key to success? What's the key to success? And, and the, uh, you know, the, the sage old man is not answering him. Finally, he says, all right, you want to know what it is? He walks him into a river and he takes, he takes the guy's head and thrusts it under the water and starts to, to hold his head. And the guy's like, what's, what's going on? And he's underwater and he can't breathe. And he, he realizes that this sage wise person is not going to release his head. He's, he's starting to feel the oxygen bleed out of him and he starts to almost drown and he's trying to come up and the guy's fighting him and he can't get his head out of the water. And he just, you know, finally jerks his hands away and jumps away from the guy out of the water. And he goes, what the hell are you doing? And he goes, when you start treating success like oxygen, you found the key to being successful. And, and I think of that as a salesperson because you really have to have that desire. You, you have to have that, that desire. And, and I think the way you say a commitment is really key too, because you may want to be successful, but if you're not willing to do what you have to do, uh, then, then it's really just talk. I mean, you're really not uh, a true, going to be a successful salesman. And here's, here's where the two tie together. Someone will set a goal, you know, at beginning of the year, for example, when they're kind of in resolution mode, they're like, you know what? I run a little bit, but I'm going to run the Chicago marathon this year. So then, you know, anyone who's run a marathon has gone to have to go through training. You don't just go run it, right? So, so they say, okay, well, it's in October each year. So I'm going to spend 10 months. And based on the, the Chicago Area Runners Association, they have a game plan. If I just run this much each day and each week and these many miles a week, I will be able to do the marathon. So the, the desire is I'm going to run the marathon. Right. But the commitment is when it's, uh, you know, in Chicago weather, it could be sleeting next week. But I have it scheduled as a running day. Do I say, well, it's sleeting, I'll go tomorrow? Or do I still go out and run? So desire is wanting to get there. Commitment is I'm willing to go run in the sleep because that's how I'm going to achieve my goal. Right. And a lot of salespeople say they want to succeed. If I have 100 in a room, say, how many want to succeed and make more money? 100 hands go up. But if I observe what they do, they're not right. acting like they want to be successful or make more money or create more value in selling. Right, because they're not doing what's necessary to get there. Exactly. And that's yeah. the not fun stuff. And you know yeah. what that's like. I mean, it's yeah, just, I do. Yeah. I do. Um, I, you know, I think there's an interesting dichotomy here, though, because um, for the non-professional salespeople and the people that, that aren't in sales, they, I think, misinterpret that desire and tenacity um, kind of as, as the used car salesman, right? The guy that won't say no, won't take a no for an answer and, and kind of goes at it. And, and I want to, I want you to dig in a little bit because I know uh, you, you wrote a, a great book called The Ethical Sales or The Contrarian Salesperson, I think is your best uh, seller. But, um, uh, and I want to talk about writing a book, but, but can you talk a little bit about this concept of an ethical salesperson and what that means? Because I think that's really different and it, it is the foundation of what I think good salespeople, true professional salespeople are really about. Yeah. Uh, almost 20 years ago, I had a, a consulting company in Chicago 
that I was working with and they were frustrated that the salespeople, that their process was basically the salespeople would sell a long-term consulting project and then they had people go deliver. So they had the consultants, the technical people on site doing these projects. And when they were on site, the consultants would see another area they could help them in, but it was out of the scope of what they were paying for. So they wouldn't bring it up because they felt guilty. They felt like they were being, and the word they told me was salesy, if they brought up another area they could help them in because they weren't hired to do that part, even though they could help them. And so when I was called in by the company, they said, help us here because these companies we're in, we can actually help them at a greater level, but the consultants won't even mention it. They feel guilty. So I got them together and I created it that out of necessity, a way to verbalize that, which has evolved into the ethical selling model. And there's two parts to it. One, part one is it's unethical to sell someone something they don't need. So when I said that to these consultants, they're like, exactly. That's what we don't want. That's why we don't want to sell because that's what salespeople do. They just go out, they're out to sell. They're out to close a deal for their own reasons. So they can make their commission. So they make the sale. They can make their budget, you know, close the deal. I said, okay, so we all agree it's unethical uh, to sell someone something they don't need. They're like, yes. I said, okay, well, here's part two. And that's this. It's unethical to not sell someone something that they do need, right? It's unethical to not sell someone something they do need. So it, if I'm seeing I can help them, but I'm not bringing it up, that's actually unethical. They were, in, they were in companies where they clearly had what we'll call in Sandler a pain, a problem they could fix, but their own mindset towards selling got in the way of helping those people out. So I want salespeople to, you know, part of the reason there's this image of salespeople uh, is that there are salespeople out there who are just out to close a deal and sell people stuff they don't need just so they can hit their numbers. And uh, one of my kind of missions is to change that mindset and have people in sales who, who look at the opposite. I'm a, you know, I really believe I create value as a salesperson. I got to believe in what I'm selling. I know there's people out there who need it and I just have to talk to them. I have to connect with them and have the kind of conversation where I can help them solve some kind of problem. And if, if I view it that way, it's ethical to make a cold call. It's ethical to get to multiple decision makers. It's ethical to reach out on LinkedIn or ask for a referral. All those things that people hold back from because, well, I don't know, and they have that rejection built around it. They have the fear of, of kind of appearing to be too assertive or whatever the word would be. And I say, okay, time out. Like, what, how do you view sales? And if they view it kind of in that taking kind of like sell people stuff they don't need mm -hmm. versus giving, which is ultimately they have a problem. I'm giving them a solution. Now money changes hands. That's the way it works, but still I'm giving them something of greater value. That's why they're hiring us to do whatever they're hiring us to do, whether it's a product right. or a service. Right. And so it's, for me, it's really important to, 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 to get as many people out of sales who are giving us a bad name and attract and grow the ones who are like, no, if I look at this ethically, I owe it to people to go out and have conversations with them yeah. and, and to figure out if we can help them, which is the qualification process. Like, yeah. can, do they have a need we can fix? And then let's talk about what that looks like. Yeah, that was a, that was a big turning point for me kind of in sales. I, I got into it early. Uh, in my career and, you know, read the one minute salesperson was my first uh -huh. book on one. sales, which is not bad actually. No, I and uh, uh, kind of tried to 
you know, figure it out on my own. I never had a really good sales mentor for the first few years I was in sales. And it wasn't until uh, I landed in a, you know, uh, a, a good company where they had good training uh, as well as really good salespeople, did I start figuring it out? And I kind of figured this out um, before the solution selling model really came um, uh, top of mind and, and certainly where Sandler was just getting started. Um, but the whole idea is that, you know, a good salesperson solves a problem and, and the customer is willing to trade money for the solution and, and the salesperson gets to bring that solution to the client's company. And, and I, get, I get more out of solving that problem for the client and making the clients better um, than, than I do out of a commission. And, and I always felt that way. Um, certainly the commissions were fun, um, winning award trips and all that kind of stuff. But when I could look to my clients and, you know, I still have a, a client that I, I sold as a salesperson, you, you know, 25 years ago, I, I go on golf trips with him now. Hmm. And, you know, it's, he's a, a very good dear friend of mine um, that, that I've really enjoyed, but it's because uh, of that professional relationship as a foundation. And, and it was really about bringing some value to their organization. And so, so do you think that, I mean, you've seen salespeople as competitors over the years, you've had salespeople working with you. Um, what have you seen when it comes to the opposite of, I mean, when, when someone is viewing it as closing a deal and just kind of selling and that, cause I, I, obviously you believe, I mean, you could just, the way you describe that, you believe like I need to talk to people I can help, but, but yeah. that's, so, so when you've seen the opposite where they're kind of not getting that and they're out, just let's yeah. go, I gotta go make my budget. Gotta go sell someone something. What, what do you, have you seen that play out? I mean, it, it, it look, those, those people, um, I think there are some, some people I've seen have had success in, in success for a, a fairly long period in their time, but they've, they've never been the top guy. And what, what I've personally seen when those people are working for me is, is I've seen them struggle uh, to do the blocking and tackling that makes successful salespeople successful in the long term. So for example, prospecting. Um, I think it's a real grind for the guy who's just out in it uh, to to close a deal because they're they're looking for the next sucker. You know, they're they're they look at sales training as as a way of performing sales jujitsu. I'm going to trick the client into thinking they need this, um, and then I'm going to close the deal. Uh, and whether they get value or not is really it's it's almost not even a topic of discussion. It's it's really about trying to find their pain so I can trick them into seeing that my solution solves that pain and there's more money for them. And, and then they're going to sign up and yes, I get a commission. Yeah. And, and those people never have to sustain success because everything is a grind to them. At the they're doing it for the, the wrong reasons, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and if you, t so if you take prospecting a little bit differently and you're saying, look, I'm trying to find people who I can help. Thus they have to have a need that I can solve and so those are the people I want to talk to. I don't want to talk to people that don't have the problems that we solve or don't have the need that, that we provide um, because I'm not going to be able to help those people. And, and so, sure, I'm, I'm, I want to have a cordial relationship with those people. I want to, you know, I like people. So, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with meeting new people and understanding their stories and their background and whatnot. But if I'm going to try and sell to them, it's got to be for something that they need or want. And the people that I think genuinely are trying to help other people, 
And, and that's kind of one of the attributes that we look for at Mother is, is salespeople who really want to help other people. If you want to help other people, I think fundamentally that's a foundation that can take you a long ways in sales on top of certainly having that tenacity and commitment to doing what's necessary to be successful. Because no matter what, salespeople are, are viewed um, not in a positive light. So you have to deal with that animosity that you deal with in the, in the market. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Jody, you know, you, you were talking about the, the traits of a salesperson and, and I'm wondering, do you think that there's a gene, a sales gene that people have? I, you know, I, I know you do a lot of testing and I'm wondering yeah. um, how you look at that. What can you, can you comment on that? Yeah. I mean, it, it touches on a, a bit on a couple of things I've mentioned, but I, I, you know, I get a, a version of that question I've been asked for as long as I can remember, which is our sales, good salespeople, born or are they made, which is a, a similar question, right? And I don't think there's a sales gene any more than I think there's a, an, an astronaut gene or a surgeon gene or a you know, construction worker gene. Um, I think there are certain elements to our personality and our, our uh, behavioral style that can lend itself to certain activities. Uh, you mentioned tenacity and desire and commitment I've mentioned. I mean, those are things that, that if we call that a sales gene, I'd say yes. Uh, but I would also suggest the traditional view of, view of selling is one of talking and closing and pushing. And as, as you know from our working together, the Sandler approach and my personal approach with the contrarian salesperson, it should be more about asking good questions and listening and only and qualifying people, not for my self-serving reasons so I can close them, but qualifying them. Can I really help this person? If I can't, let's just park friends. I, I don't want to waste their time. I certainly don't want to waste my time. If, if there's not a need, I'll go find other people that do have a need because I know in what you sell and what I sell, it's ultimately, there's a lot of people out there that need it and I'm not going to waste my time or energy or theirs trying to sell someone something that they, that they, either don't need or they need, but they just, I can't get them to appreciate they need it. Cause you, right. I know your business is very similar, right? You have people, a lot of you who need your stuff, but they, they're in the form of, Hey, I'm good. I think we're good. You know, we're working with X, Y, Z and we're happy with them. Or, you know what, we do it ourselves and we really don't need someone from the outside to help us with cybersecurity or whatever you'd be talking about. Um, and, and I mean, selling is helping people discover, wow, maybe I do need it. But at some point, I'm going to be like, okay, enough. I'll go find someone else who appreciates yeah. a bit more of, of, of the value creation we can provide. But selling, there's that middle ground because much of selling, I believe, is that many people, when we first start talking to them, do think they're okay. I mean, when you first talk to a business, and even today, if you were to make a call and you said, hey, how's how's uh, your technology and your stuff around like people working from home? Uh, how's that? Have you been able to adapt there? And how's your, how's your cybersecurity around people working from home and the, your, your, your concerns there? Or I think those are a couple of things you just mentioned on a call recently. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so cert, I, there's a certain tier of people that say we're fine. So, but, but they're really not. So now, okay, do I just say goodbye or do I hang in there a little longer and say, okay, well, before I let you go, can I just ask you, when it comes to the way you're tech, and then you ask them, that's where you would know, but there's a qu another question you ask where they're like, huh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not okay. So let's talk well, a little bit you know, more. It's, it's interesting. You know, I, I, uh, you know, when you, when you engage people, if you're, 
if you're um, if you're really focused on trying to help them, there's this tipping point in that conversation with a prospect that you're looking to get to, which is, you know, there, there's an adage, I, I'm not crazy about it, but it's, it's fairly accurate when it says buyers are liars. Um, and it's, it's, it's trained in most people, including myself. And I'm a, you know, I consider myself a professional salesperson at heart. Um, but you know, we're, we're kind of trained because of that model of the used car salesman to hold our cards close to the vest. Like, I'm not going to share with you what I really want because right. then you're going to, you're going to try and sales. Take advantage sales of me, me right? right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we're, we're, we're looking to find um, really a way of building trust with the client. And I think when you are very open, honest, and direct, you know, with, you know, one of the things we get asked is, you know, what, well, what do you cost? What's, what's your charge? And when we tell people just right, just flip that number right out at them, they're almost taken aback a little bit by the honesty and, and any question they ask, I'm going to ask answer honestly, and we're going to ask very open, direct questions of them to build that rapport. And, 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 you know, I think, what what we've learned through going through the training with Sandler really, and I think it's really uh, helpful at, at at us building our profession is is this idea of a contrarian approach to sales. And I want you to explain really what you mean because it's very different. I, I call it the unsell approach, and I think it's a very powerful way of of disarming a prospect and getting them to be a little more honest with you. And, and keep in mind, the whole context is we're just trying to find the people that we can help. And if we can't help them, I'm going to push them to the right person that can help them. Right. So on, yeah. in that context, what is this contrarian approach? Well, the, the reason I wrote the book is that, yeah, it, it's, there's this traditional image of a salesperson, which we've touched on, which is uh, pushy talks most of the time goes out and tries to close. Um, and, and that approach tends to increase the resistance to communicating that we have in the people we talk to. So when you go, I mean, uh, like when many people go into a car dealership, the first thing that happens is someone approaches them and it, there's automatically this little bit of pressure, like, no, no, I'm just looking. And, you know, have you, we've all been there, right? We're just like, wow. It's like David Sandler, the founder of Sandler, uh, 50 years ago, roughly, he founded it. Said, you know, some salespeople are like the vulture on the on the phone wire, waiting for the roadkill, and then they swoop down, you know. <laughs> and right. And uh, so much of the reaction that prospects have to a salesperson. So take it out of the car dealer example. A prospect gets a cold call on the phone, uh, and let's say that that person cold calling actually has a. a something of value for that person, but their natural reaction, a salesperson on the phone, blow them off. So blowing them off sounds like, hey, not interested. Uh, can you send me something? Uh, hey, COVID's happening now, not a good time. Call me in a few months when things get better. That's when we're getting now. Um, you know, and so what's really happening because of the traditional approach, we're inviting this kind of stereotypical image in there in a split second, and then they shut down and push back, even mm -hmm. to people we can help. So if you right. made a call today to a business that has some issue with their technology, especially with the COVID thing, that's like, you are even more vulnerable now. Do you know this? The fact that it's a sales call can 
totally negate the fact that you can totally help them out. That becomes the instant reaction they have, and that's why they say, hey, Dave, you know, it's a little, little crazy time now. We're all working from home, so can you call me in a couple months? Okay, but <laughs> you kind of need it now. Uh, so yeah. the contrarian approach was how can we basically do the opposite of what they're expecting and be even more effective? And this came from my observation that the contrarian salesperson is a parable. So I wrote it in the form of a story. And the, the main character is one who starts off as a traditional salesperson, has some success, but then kind of gets into a comfort zone and goes backwards. And, and, and kind of finds his Yoda and he's the contrarian salesperson who has a completely different approach to it. And he kind of takes them like under his wing and teaches them how to listen more than talk, how to uh, disqualify as quickly as possible, how to let the prospect decide to continue, not the salesperson putting pressure to continue, how to understand that when someone says something like the old buyers are liars thing you, you, you mentioned, which I was trained on early on too, or uh, a Sandler corollary rule is prospects lie all the time. Um, <laughs> it doesn't make them bad people, but everyone listening to this now has lied to a salesperson. I mean, everyone, and, and, and everyone we all have has. done it as a defense mechanism. Good, upstanding, moral people will still lie to a salesperson. It's like, right. it's I like, believe a priest would lie to a salesperson. <laughs> like, it, it's like you can lie to a salesperson and still go to heaven. There's like this rule, yeah. right? It's like, okay. Right. I mean, anybody who's ever been in a men's store at Nordstrom has lied to a salesperson yeah. because they walk up to you and say, how are you doing today? Great. Uh, do you, can I help you? What are you looking for? Oh, nothing. I'm just looking. Well, yeah. you're at a store in men generally Looking at slacks, right? <laughs> right. They're, they're not shoppers. They're buyers. Like, you know, they're there because they need something, but you don't want to get hawked, right? Yeah. Well, and, and that, was, that was the approach of the book. It's like, okay, let's look at, let's look at an opposite way. And, and it wasn't just some theory. It was my observation through my personal experience, all my years in Sandler and just observing the top salespeople. They were never cut from that cloth that we think of as a salesperson. They were always problem solvers, always good at relationship building. They're always good at these things that the traditional stereotypical salesperson was not. And what I noticed, the, the top salespeople, and to, going back to your point, could you get into like today, could you go out and sell some scam to the elderly on how to protect themselves with the virus and sell them something that never shows up? Yeah, you could do that for the next month and probably make a lot of money, get a lot of credit cards. But first of all, you got to sleep. You got to go to sleep. You know, look at the mirror, right? You got you to live with that. Yeah. But also, you can't do that long term. You can't. You, that will catch up to you. So I'm using an extreme example. But when we have stereotypical salesperson who do all the tricks, yeah, they can do something short term. But they're not going to have a career and they're not going to feel good about it. And and they're ultimately not the, the world's not going to reward them. Um, and I, I really believe that you create a lot of value and you get rewarded. I mean, yeah. I, I think that's what capitalism, we can look at all the dynamics, but when it boils it down for me, if you create a lot of value, you get rewarded. If you don't create a lot of value, you don't get rewarded. Sales gives to the giver and takes from the taker is the, is the one of the things. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, you know, over time, uh, that that's really the mindset. One final question, Jody, you are, uh, our subject matter expert, you are a sales training professional. You have built one of the most successful sales training practices in the country. 
Uh, I know you personally, I, I, I know no one who's finer at sales training uh, than you. What's your favorite sales movie? Favorite movie uh, is Tommy Boy. And people think I'm joking when Thank I God say that. Thank you didn't say Glengarry Glen Ross. Well, Glengarry Glen Ross is my favorite one for if you don't want to be in sales and you're looking for reasons to not be in sales, watch that. It's <laughs> the most you. depressing movie about selling you'll ever see. But I, th I like Tommy Boy and people think I'm joking when I say it. But if you actually watch it, and, yeah. and it's just, it's so funny, but there's really good sales lessons in it. And if you yeah. observe what happens to Chris Farley's character, it's pretty, it, it, there's, there's all kinds of yeah. really cool, and it's fun to watch. I mean, I could, I could watch that. You it, know? But you know, it's, 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 I'm glad you said that because um, he goes through the journey of how to become a salesperson in the movie. Like that's really what it's right. like. One way of looking at it is how a guy who has the desire and commitment, right? Uh, mm -hmm. to do it goes through this journey of going from a hapless moron to uh, a hapless moron who's actually a pretty good salesperson. And saves the company. Right, yeah. saves the yeah. company. It's Which, great. by the way, there's a lot of examples where the salespeople do, in fact, save the company. You know, I, I'm, I'm of the belief that nothing happens until the sale is made. I'm 100% with you on that. So. That was me and Jody talking about uh, his his life at, to get him where he is today as one of the leading professionals in uh, sales leadership. We've got the uh, next one coming up uh, around the how to respond to COVID. But uh, what do you think, Mike? I mean, anytime that we can talk about uh, business and beer bongs, uh, I'm a hundred percent in. So I, I think so. And I thought that was really tricky how he lured us into thinking there was actually a beer bong society because I have two flam bongs at, at my uh, house. Uh, Do you really? Flamingo beer bongs. Yeah. yeah. As <laughs> well right, as well. a sham bong, which is um, a champagne bong, uh, which by the way, I don't really actually recommend because if you drink a whole glass of champagne quickly, um, it, 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 you're fighting hard to keep it down. So, um, as much as I love to drink beer, the idea of, uh, sharing a beer bong with other people it, that ended in college, just that, germaphobe. All you, you would now be a COVID idiot if you shared a beer bong. <laughs> yes. Right? That's our PSA. No sharing yeah. beer bongs. Right. Don't be a COVID idiot. Thanks for listening to Midwest Mavericks. This is Dave Davenport with Mike Vizo. You can find out more always at motherg.com. We have a resources page with lots of uh, information around the COVID crisis and, and other resources to help you run your business more effectively. Thanks for listening. Midwest Mavericks is powered by Mother G. For more information and a free security assessment, visit motherg.com. If you're a maverick who wants your story told on Midwest Mavericks, go to motherg.com slash podcast and let us know. That's motherg.com slash podcast.